Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Mel. <clears throat> I wish people would say I was funny too, Mel. It's not happening. <laughs> I was a brand new pastor in uh, Alberta Beach, and I went and visited somebody from uh, our congregation who was in the hospital and hadn't met me yet. And after he left, he said to his wife, he can't be a pastor. And his wife said to him, why not? And, she, and he said, because he's too young and he's not fat enough. So <laughs> I'll take that, I suppose. I was told after our first service, you're going to have to go ask Kelsey, our children's director, forgiveness. And I said, for what? And she said, well, the children's program is supposed to last 75 minutes, and our adult worship service only lasted 60. So if you're here today and you have kids in our nursery or upstairs, please don't pick them up right away because Kelsey's really mean. Don't tell her that, but she'll let me know. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the church. Thank you that we can have a sense of humor. Thank you that you welcome us from all stages of life, whatever our background, whatever our cultures, wherever we come from, whatever we look like, everybody is welcome to church. As we talk about what it means to be trained by the cross, may we be reminded about what it is that you have in store for us and how great those promises are. Please open our minds that we can understand the passage at hand today. Please open our eyes that we might see you more clearly. Please open our hearts and our hands so that we might have the boldness and the courage to do what you're asking us to do. God, I pray that my words would fall down so that your words would be lifted up, that you would meet each and every one of us where we are today and with what we need to hear this morning. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I'd like to start off my sermon this morning by telling you two different stories. The first story is about my Christian heritage. When I was a young man in elementary school, early junior high, I thought what I grew up with was normal and quickly found out after that, that's absolutely not the case. My dad has been an elder in the church that he attends in the past. He's been leading a small group for well over a decade. My mom is also heavily involved in the church that her and my dad attend. She's been uh, running the kitchen there for a number of years, and when the church was smaller, she also helped out with kids' ministry. I never really had the opportunity to know either of my grandparents, but both my parents and my grandma said, your grandpas were amazing men of God. My dad's mom is a lady who loves to pray, and she would pray for hours a day about her, uh, her church, her grandkids, her family, and so much more. My mom's mom, still alive, is in her mid-80s and is still a leader in her local church and actively involved there as well. My aunts and uncles have all remained married, serve in different areas in their local churches. Many of their kids, my cousins, have gone to Bible college, have worked in summer camps, been involved in church ministry, and I thought this was the norm. From the very moment I was born, I was brought to church. Church played an integral role in my life. I grew up learning all the stories, singing all the songs, attending all the camps and the special events. When I was in youth group, I was blessed to have three terrific youth pastors. I have no idea if the lead pastor at that time did it on purpose or not, but their gifts covered athletics, music, production, academics, and they loved all of us as students. It was a thriving youth group. Without any hesitation, I can say that youth ministry played a key component as to why I'm standing here today. The love that the pastors had for me, the encouragement they gave for me, the opportunities to grow and learn what my gifts or talents might be. I love the church. That's my Christian heritage. I also come with a cultural heritage like every one of you in this room. 
We all have a story. Where did we grow up? What was our family like? What were, how did our friends impact us? Where did we go to school? What did we do? All of that impacts us. When I was in high school, I was really involved in the church going three to four times a week. And I became more and more involved in leadership with the youth group. And I had just encompassed and uh, had become kind of the guy that was the moral guy. And while that might seem like a good thing, nobody wanted to hang out with me. <laughs> My friends in youth group actually said, Dave, if we want to have a good time, we don't invite you to join us. I'd never been drunk, never smoked a cigarette, let alone tried drugs. While my soccer buddies were sleeping around with girls, I hadn't even kissed one before. Even among my peers at church, I was the good conscience. And so as I graduated from high school and headed off to Bible college, I thought to myself, is this what Christianity is? Is it just following a bunch of rules? I've been going to church since I can remember. What is this all about? My Christian heritage, my cultural heritage had collided. I'm German. Both my parents are German. All four of my grandparents are German. And when they came over from Germany, the first thing they needed to do was attend a Bible-believing Mennonite church. And while morals were high, so were the expectations. And if you didn't hit those expectations, they held grudges. I remember sitting around the kitchen table and my dad saying, Uncle George could teach a mule to be stubborn. That guy is world-class. Once you hurt him or his family, you are cut off. One of the senior farming friends said to me, you go to church on Sunday to see who you could trust on Monday. In my naivete, I took that as a good thing. And he goes, oh, it wasn't. I knew the Bible stories. I was good at following the Bible stories. But my heart had not yet been impacted by those Bible stories. As we head into Easter... This week is typically called Holy Week. The Bible points out the wonderful beauty that is taking place. As Jesus spends this week in Jerusalem and eventually ends up on the cross and rising from the dead three days later, we recall Romans 3.23 that says, every one of us in this room has sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some of us have lied some of us have looked lustfully at another person. Some of us have desperately wanted someone else's money, their vacations, their homes, their cars. Some of us have put our needs ahead of others or used our words to hurt instead of bringing healing. Some of us, myself included, have done all these things and more. Then God, in this incredible act of love, sends his one and only son, Jesus, into the world to live a holy and perfect life where Jesus cancels our debt of sin by nailing it to the cross. World-changing, life-transforming news. If you believe in Jesus and commit yourself to following him, Jesus says, you will spend the rest of eternity with me in heaven. But for this to take place, we must not only receive God's forgiveness, we need to pass on God's forgiveness. My Christian heritage and my cultural heritage were on a crash course. Was I allowing the word of God to impact my heart? If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. You can pick one up or you can open your phone or tablet and download a Bible app. The Bible can be a bit of an intimidating book at first, so I invite you to open them up to the table of contents. If you don't know your way around, you'll find the book Matthew. You can flip to that page. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. 
Matthew 18, verse 21. Over the last few weeks, as Mel has walked us through this sermon series on cross-trained, I've appreciated how he's framed it. So much, uh, if you've grown up in church, perhaps you've heard the term spiritual exercises. Other people call it spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. And basically what that means is reading the Bible or praying. Perhaps you've heard of fasting or silence or worship or living in community. And while these are wonderful things to practice, and our leadership team highly endorses them. We don't read the Bible, we don't pray, we don't meet in community just to check off that little ticky box. We read the Bible because we want God to speak to us. We pray because we want to have a relationship with God. We worship him and sing songs because he's worthy of our praise. We live in community so that we can build one another's up and be challenged and encouraged as well. The more time we spend in these spiritual practices, the more it helps us to build that authentic faith, to live a cross-trained life. Today, specifically, it helps us to let it go. Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now let's understand where Peter is coming from here. The Jewish rabbis taught that you would forgive people three times. And after you've forgiven them three times, if they still sinned against you, you could cut them off. This idea came from the book of Amos. If you want to look it up, you'll find it in Amos chapter 1. And so the apostle Peter is thinking, listen to what I've got to say. I'm going to take three. I'm going to double it. I'm going to add, it, add one for good measure. And you can almost see the other disciples going, get a load of this guy. He's got this thing figured out. But Jesus answers in verse 22, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Those same disciples who were just impressed with Peter's answer might be saying, oh snap, Peter, you just got owned. Jesus' point is clear. I don't want you keeping track of how many times you've forgiven others. I want you to forgive them every time they sin against you. One commentator makes a really interesting observation on this passage when he says the numbers 7 and 10 in Scripture are thought of as complete or whole numbers. In essence, Jesus is saying, I don't want you to just forgive them seven times. I want you to forgive them completely times completely plus completely. Think about the practicality of that in our family relationships. I'm a married man. I've got a few kids And I'd like to think that I treat my wife and my kids really well. But if my wife's only going to forgive me three times, I'm not going to make it to lunch. (laughs) And Jesus, always the masterful teacher, tells us a story to describe what he means. If you enjoy taking notes, I've simply called the first part the master and the servant in verses 27 to 30. Pardon me, um, in verses 23 to 30. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man, a man, pardon me. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. We need to stop here and, talk, and look at what's going on. We may not be familiar with first century Roman economics. This is a big deal. One talent is worth 20 years wages. So let's pretend for sake of argument that the average person in Alberta makes $50,000. You might say that's a little low, you might say that's a little high, perfect. It's also a really round number to work with. 
If the average person makes 50 grand, you times that by 20, and you get a million. You times a million times 10,000, you get 10 billion dollars. I think we can all agree that that's a lot of money. Even people like Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates, we can understand not many people have that kind of cash. A Roman historian by the name of Josephus says that the total tax revenue for the five provinces around Jerusalem, Judea, Idumea, Perea, Samaria, and Galilee, was 800 talents. This man had racked up 12 times more than the uh, Palestinian tax revenue. Verse 25, since he was not able to pay the master, no kidding, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Let me say that number again. $10 billion. I don't know what you think you might be worth on the slave market. It's not that much. A great slave, even the best of the best, was considered to be a healthy young man in his teenage years because a slave owner could probably get 20 years worth out of him and would garner the price of a million dollars, the equivalent of a million dollars. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. Can you imagine standing in that courtroom and thinking to yourself, what a clown. You can't pay back $10 billion. There's no way that's ever going to happen. The king is never going to forgive a debt that outrageous. And two, who actually thinks they can pay it back? Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him canceled the debt, and let him go. You remember how the parable begins? Take another look at verse 23. The kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like me and you standing before a holy, perfect, all-powerful God and being reminded of the debt that we have racked up that we are completely unable to pay. Our sins have piled up one on top of another, on top of another, continuing to grow to the point where Jesus himself compares it to more than 10 times the national debt, an amount we will never be able to repay. But as we come to God and as we plead and beg for mercy, thinking it's our last resort and not having a clue what else we could possibly do, God looks at us and says, of course, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. The reason we don't have to pay this debt is because Jesus has already paid it for us. If we come to God and confess our sins, he forgives us. From the smallest sin to the greatest, you are absolutely forgiven. Forgiven for hurting people with words and actions. Forgiven for road rage. Forgiven for the bad business deal. Forgiven for the worst sins you have ever committed. In the Bible, in this book, we have murderers forgiven, prostitutes forgiven, demonized people forgiven, liars forgiven, people who hate Christianity forgiven. All who come to Jesus are forgiven. Amen? But this isn't how the story ends. Jesus continues in verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now let's be clear, Daenerys is no small amount. Daenerys is the equivalent of one day's wage. So to be consistent, if I say the average Alberta salary is $50,000, that would mean the average person in one day makes about $200. 
You times that by 100 and you get 20 grand, not an insignificant sum. Perhaps you've heard someone teach this passage before and downplay the amount saying it's just a few dollars. That would completely miss the point. If you were to ask for a dollar so you could buy a pop and not pay me back, I'm not going to care. If someone smashes my car and I have a $20,000 repair bill, we're going to have a conversation. Back to verse 28. He began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Almost word for word identical to what the other servant said earlier in verse 26. Verse 30. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had that man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Think about how crazy this is. The master has just forgiven him $10 billion and he can't forgive a guy 20 grand. That would be like your son taking your car and ramming it through the front of your house, forgetting which was the brake and which was the gas. Not that I've ever done that before. And then being so mad at his sister for scratching his iPhone after you forgave him. It doesn't make sense. You can imagine sitting there listening to Jesus and thinking to yourself, what's he going to do next? Second part of our outline, he talks about the pain of unforgiveness. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have the mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. The servant's unwillingness to forgive shows his wicked heart. Despite being pardoned, he refuses to pass that forgiveness on to others. He hadn't been transformed by the forgiveness that his master had shown him. And isn't that the point of the parable? Jesus finishes in verse 35 by repeating that last line. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. I don't think this story is hard to understand. I think this story is hard to swallow. Everyone who has received God's forgiveness must pass on God's forgiveness. And some of you might be thinking, Dave, easy for you to say, you have no idea what has happened to me and my family. Dave, were you molested as a child? Dave, did your spouse say to you, till death do us part, when really what they meant is until something better comes along? Were you ripped off by a business partner to the tune of $50,000? Has your teenage daughter come home from a party crying because she was just raped? Do you know how hard it is to forgive somebody? The good news of the gospel is the authors of these scriptures are pointing at Jesus and saying, let us remember what God has done for us not what other people have done to us. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever downplay the sins that were committed against us, many of which make God furious with anger. But this isn't the movies. We're not called to take revenge. We're not called to mete out judgment. We're called to forgive as God has forgiven us. In the book of Romans, we read these words, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, 
Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. I cannot begin to imagine the hurt and the pain that has been experienced in a room this size. But if you're anything like my heritage and world class at holding grudges, it's time to let it go. It's time to let it go. Today, let it go. The greatest hurt I ever experienced was on my internship. The details I'm not going to share with you this morning, it's not the time or the place. But somebody hurt me incredibly bad. The elders of the church actually said, Dave, the internship is eight months in, just go home, you've passed, it's okay. My dad said to me, Dave, just come home, it's not worth it. I stuck out for another few weeks and eventually came home when my internship was supposed to end and it was a painful last few months, two months. And from that time until uh, school started and I was a senior, I had to forgive that person over and over and over again. Upwards of 10 times a day, that person's face would come to mind and I would say, God, help me to forgive them. For months, it took me 10 plus times a day to forgive that person and then it slowly dwindled down to a few times a day. A few more months passed and it was a few times a week until about a year, year and a half later I could finally say I had forgiven that person. You too might be carrying great hurt but let us focus on what God has done for us not on what others have done to us. Despite all the hurt and all the sin we've committed against God an amount so massive that he compares it to 10 times the national debt he loved us enough to send his only son to die on a cross. Someone has to die for our sins. The Bible um, in the book of Hebrews says this, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Either we accept the grace of God knowing Jesus has died for our sins and pass that grace on to others, or we have to pay that penalty ourselves with our own blood and spend eternity apart from God in hell. I don't like talking about hell. Last week, a couple dozen men from Ellerslie got together with a few hundred men from around Edmonton, and we went to a church in the city for a Promise Keepers event. And one of my favorite speakers was on Saturday morning, just a gifted communicator blending stories with the word of God that he was teaching on. And in the midst of one of his stories, he stopped and he said, you never let facts get in the way of a good story. And I think sometimes we can confuse some strong words with saying, oh, that's not actually true. Jesus has some hard words in this passage. If you take another look with me at verses 34 and 35, we'll read those hard words. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness is not an option. It's an obligation, a duty, something that Jesus takes very seriously. This isn't a one-time event that Jesus says these words either. Earlier on in the book of Matthew, right after Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says these words in Matthew chapter six. If you forgive men when they sin against you, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Pastor Tim and I were talking about this passage earlier this week. And he said, Dave, I might be stating the obvious, but when Jesus died on the cross, he not only died for our sins, he died for the people who will sin against us. Their sins are forgiven as well. Will we also forgive them? If you're taking notes, the third part of our outline this morning, I'm entitling Giving Up the Grudge. In the same way there's pain and unforgiveness, there's great healing in the act of forgiveness. Gary Thomas, who wrote a chapter in his book, which I blatantly stole, called Giving Up the Grudge, says this, social scientists are discovering that forgiveness may lead to victims' emotional and and even physical healing and wholeness. Psychologist Glenn Harnden writes, forgiveness not only heightens the potential for reconciliation, but also releases the offender from prolonged anger, rage, and stress that have been linked to physiological problems such as cardiovascular diseases, high blood pressure, hypertension, cancer, and other psychosomatic illness. Lewis Smead, who's written extensively on the art of forgiveness, says this, the first person who gains from forgiveness is the person who does the forgiving. And the first person injured by the refusal to forgive is the one who is wronged in the first place. And then Lewis Smead finishes with this, to embrace the call to forgive is ultimately an act of self-defense. It's time to give up the grudge and let it go. For the fans of Disney's movie Frozen, I am not going to sing Let It Go or else I'll need to ask 400 people forgiveness and that's asking a lot. The word forgive actually means let it go to send it away. And if you have young kids or you babysit or you have young grandkids and you hear that song again, I hope that when you hear Let It Go, you think about forgiveness. We spent a few minutes talking about the pain of unforgiveness, but I also want to talk about something else that happens, a misunderstanding of forgiveness. While I don't have time to go into detail, you're about to see on the screen behind me what forgiveness is not, again adapted from Lewis Smead's book, The Art of Forgiveness. This is what forgiveness is not. It is not ignoring or forgetting. Forgiveness is not condoning or excusing. Forgiveness is not tolerating or allowing further abuse. It is not reconciliation or restoration. It does not mean our relationships will go back to normal. It does not mean the offender escapes consequence or justice. As a pastor, I have the incredible privilege of walking with people through different stages of their life. I get to see them in the most high, most exciting times, standing on this very platform to marry a couple, standing in that baptismal tank and having the incredible opportunity to baptize somebody standing right here and helping someone dedicate their child. But I also hear terrible stories. I hear stories of sexual abuse. I hear stories of marriages falling apart. I hear stories of people so much looking and searching for hope that Jesus offers. When those people are in my office who are just at a broken point When we talk about forgiveness, it doesn't mean 
that everything changes. If you have a sexually deviant relative and you've forgiven that individual, that doesn't mean they get to watch your kids. Forgiveness does not mean going back to a relationship in which you are constantly abused. Forgiveness does not mean there's automatically going to be reconciliation in that relationship and that everything goes back to normal. Forgiveness does not mean if someone has offended you and done something wrong that they escape all charges. Forgiveness does mean that you let it go, that you no longer hold their sin against them. After I graduated from college, I moved in with a couple of guys and we were really excited to move in together. We were all in our mid-20s, we were all starting our careers. It was a really exciting time and we looked forward and had planned a place with three bedrooms that we could spend the time together. Until one of my roommates didn't pay rent. He promised the money was coming but the money never showed up. The beginning of month two happened and it was more of the same. In hindsight, I probably should have kicked him out, but I didn't want my friend on the street. He's my friend. Of course, he's going to pay me the rent that's owed. So after three months, I called his place of work. They had no recollection of him ever working there. I thought to myself, that must have been a new employee. It's a big company. There's no way that's true. So the next day, I call again, and I ask to talk to human resources. I'm not making this up. The human resource manager says, we have no recollection of that person. I don't think they've ever worked here. My roommate had made the whole thing up. Never had a job, was spending the day drifting around the city. So when he got home that night, I talked to him and I said, this isn't true. Instead of admitting it, he doubled down. He said, how could HR not know who I am? I go to work every morning, you see me leave. So I talked to my other roommate and we decided to call in his dad, to call in his brother, who lived out of town and the four of us had an intervention. His dad, his brother, me, the paying roommate sat down with this man who we cared about so much and we had a really serious talk. My friend just broke down in tears. And he said, I've been living a lie. For the last number of months, everything I've said has been made up. And he looked at his dad, his brother, his two roommates, and he said, will you please forgive me? For my roommate and I, for his dad, his brother, we were happy to forgive him. Because we finally heard the truth. It brought healing. Later that night, he came to me and he said, I have not felt this good for well over a year. Because I've been living this lie and I now finally feel like I have freedom again. But our relationship had changed. We asked him to leave. He wasn't able to pay his rent. But we still remained friends. It was just a different type of friendship. The situation was difficult, but in the end, there was healing. Who do you need to forgive? Is there someone who their face keeps coming to mind over the course of this sermon? How will you forgive them? Is this something that comes easily to you? Praise God that that's the case. Is this something that's going to take a little bit of work? Might I encourage start by praying for them, by talking to a mature Christian friend to say, how do I forgive this individual? There's healing in forgiveness. There's a quote I read this past week that really stuck with me. It's by Gary Thomas. 
And it goes like this. Being unwilling to forgive means that we hold everyone around us to a standard of perfection. There's only one person who lived a truly perfect life. And he is the one who is more quick to forgive than anybody else. As we go to Jesus Christ to receive the forgiveness of God, may we also have the boldness and the courage and the love for others to pass this forgiveness on and to let it go. As the worship team comes up, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for the love that Jesus has for us in living a perfect and holy life and knowing that the sins that we have racked up against you continue to pile up and yet you forgive us anyways. Please forgive us as we struggle to forgive others. And please fill us with your boldness and your courage and your love so that we can pass this forgiveness on to others and to do so in a way that brings you glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' most powerful name. Amen.